giving praise to our God. We have enjoyed a couple of hours of doing that, or at least an hour and a half of doing that to this point this morning. And sometimes, maybe this morning, it's pretty easy to do. Other times, it's more difficult. A couple of years ago, coming out of COVID, I I began a practice of every morning writing down something for which I was thankful. And some mornings, it's really easy. And probably a terrible thing for a pastor to admit. Some mornings, I struggle to be thankful. That's one of the reasons I do this, because it's a discipline that forces me to say, there are always things for which to be thankful. We as the church, and we're in this series that we're called to be the church, we as the church are to be a thankful people. Not just at Thanksgiving time, But all the time, we're to be a thankful people to God. Psalm 33, and I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices. But Psalm 33 is a no excuses call for you and me who claim to be followers of Jesus in the family of God to be thankful people. It opens with five commands that highlight that. So look at the first three verses with me. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Notice how the psalm begins with shout for joy, and then verse 3 ends with loud shouts. The two words are actually different. The first is a loud cry, and the last is a war cry. So in other words, worship sometimes isn't quiet, though there's a place for that. There's also a place for it being filled with an exuberant Praise to God. In the middle, we get other commands to give thanks with the lyre and make melody with the harp, to sing. Actually, just a side note, this is the first time of many times in the Psalms where we get reference to musical instruments. And I'm very thankful for the folks that were sitting back here a couple of minutes ago and for their ability to skillfully play on those instruments. In fact, I was visiting with a a shut-in a week or so ago, and they were talking about the fact that they love to watch, watch the service online, and they really appreciate the instruments that are played and the beauty of that music. There's an intensity here. Shout exuberance, not just going through the motions. One of the things, and I've said it before, but one of the things I love about Berean is that we are a singing church. I mean, I love sitting on the front row and listening to you in this morning, my goodness, listening to you sing enthusiastically, lifting a voice of praise to God. 
The psalmist talks about a new song. That doesn't necessarily mean brand new, though it can mean that. It can just mean old melody with new lyrics, as we did some in the first hour this morning. Or it can just mean a song that you know, but you're singing it with a freshness so that worship isn't just going through the motions. And it's not just fervor, there's also a fresh grasp and appreciation of who God is. The psalmist says, this befits the righteous. It is fitting for the upright to do that. It is beautiful in the eyes of God. And in fact, the language of verse 1 really echoes the language of the verse that comes right before that. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so most scholars believe that these two psalms were very early on linked together. Psalm 32 is, is David's psalm of praise to God for God's forgiveness of his sin. So then Psalm 33 becomes the praise of those who know God's forgiveness. And if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, that's you and that's me. We are called to praise God. And so this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 33, and I want us to notice five motives the psalmist gives us for praising. And you will notice that in all of these five None of them are man-centered. Let's pick up the story in verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist says, here's a reason, here's a motive for praising God because God is the active promise keeper. That what he has promised he will do, he does. That's not true of everybody in our lives. In fact, it's not true of anybody in our lives 100% of the time. But it is true of God. He always says and does what's right. His words and his deeds are always appropriate. His word is upright. It is without deceit. It's without crookedness. You, we would say today, he's on the level. He can be trusted. And all his works are done in truth, in faithfulness. He is integrity personified. He does everything that he's promised to do. This week... For those of us who enjoy Peanuts cartoon, was the 71st anniversary of an important cartoon. This past week, 71 years ago, this appeared for the first time. And every year, Charlie Brown thinks he's going to get to kick the football and Lucy pulls it away. She is not integrity personified. But God is. Everything God has promised to you and to me, He has or He will fulfill. Not always in the time and the way you and I think He should, but He will fulfill it. Because God is always for His people. He loves righteousness and justice. 
What he does, what he has ingrained in him is total goodness. He is always righteous. He is always just. And he is utterly and completely loyal to his people and to his covenant with them. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That was in Psalm 103. If you were in the first hour this morning, we read that word steadfast love. We sang it in a couple of our songs. And it is, most of you know, that is my favorite Hebrew word. It's hesed. Loyal, covenant-keeping love is what fills God's universe. It is what characterizes his relationship with his people. So we can praise him because he is the active promise keeper. Some of you in the first hour testified about ways God has kept his promises. Others of you were sitting there thinking about that. And if you weren't, I challenge you to do that. Maybe not right now. I would prefer you listen to what I'm saying But sometime today, sometime this week, take the opportunity to think about what promises God has kept to you in this past year. He will always do what's right in every situation. He acts with loyal love. And that is the only secure foundation in this crazy world in which we live. That we can trust God to do what he has said he will do. But my question for you this morning, whether you're here or whether you're watching online, is one I'll probably ask a few times. Do you have a relationship with that God? He is loyal. He keeps his promises to his people. But are you one of his people? God is the active promise keeper. The psalmist continues, by the word of the Lord, there's that word, word that we just saw in the verses above it. But now by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps of the waters in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There's a motive for praise. God is the all-powerful creator. Praise him for that. He created the universe with ease. He simply spoke. And the galaxies spread out across billions of light years. We're still discovering things out there. And yet all he did was speak and it came into being. Some of you can't even get your dog to obey you. (laughs) But the creation obeys the word of the creator. He effortlessly harnessed the sea and put it where it belongs. That may not mean so much to you, but if you had lived in that culture, you would have caught the reference. In Israel, ancient Israel, the Canaanite peoples around them had mythology about the sea, and the sea was the the goddess of chaos who always resisted and fought the other gods and had to be brought into control. 
The psalmist says, man, he just gathers them into a heap. He just puts them in their storehouse where they belong. In the creation, he separates by a word, land and sea. At the Red Sea and the Jordan River, so his people can cross them, he heaps up the waters, the same word that psalmist uses, because he's the all-powerful creator. Nothing in all of creation can resist his will and his plan. And so the psalmist says, let all the earth fear him. Let them stand in awe of him. And and you understand that the idea of fear, especially as it relates to the people of God, is, is not cowardly trembling, but it is holding God in reverence. It is standing in awe of Him. It is this kind of wondering, joyful understanding of God that leads to obedience. You cannot, in Scripture, separate the fear of God from obeying God. All humanity is called, but we as God's people especially are called to obey Him, to stand in awe of Him. And so you could walk outside in one of these clear, crisp fall into winter nights and look up at the stars and realizing you're seeing one tiny piece of all that God created out there. Or you can look at the animal kingdom and you can pick any animal. I just picked watching a hawk soar in the sky, riding the the waves up there. Or you can just pick a flower and examine the petals and examine the inner parts of that flower. Or you can do what I've been just doing, hold out your hand and look at it and be amazed at what it took for this to work like it hopefully should. The all-powerful creator reminds us that we need to be in right relationship with him. We need to bow in awestruck obedience before him. And it reminds us that we can trust him. That faith is not faith in some kind of a vacuum that it's faith in the God who is the active promise keeper and the all-powerful creator. In the 1947 version of A Miracle on 34th Street, when they're having this big debate about whether Santa really exists, one of the characters says this, and he gets it dead wrong. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is saying there is someone there who is bigger than we can imagine, who has created everything and who keeps his promises, and that's where my faith rests. I can trust him. God is the active promise keeper and the all-powerful creator. He is also the authoritative ruler. See, God's not the creator who kind of wound up the world and then said, good luck, bye. He rules. He rules this world even today. He's in charge, and so he's worthy of our praise. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, the psalmist writes. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. 
the plans of his heart to all generations. By the way, verse 11 was the theme verse that we chose for the capital campaign. God's counsel stands forever. His plans will not stop. Because while we were doing what we could do, we recognized that, that God is going to do what His plan is, both in the capital campaign and in your life and in my life, and we can trust Him to do what is best. The sovereign King's good plans for His people stand firm in contrast with the plans of man. A number of you have asked, and, and we've shared individually, but Peggy and my plan is that come late winter, early spring, we'll put our house on the market, and then we will move to Kentucky, where we will help to care for her mom. Will that happen? I have no idea. But God does. Your plans and my plans, they may or may not happen. But His plans stand forever to all generations. And the psalmist is particularly contrasting the plans of God with the plans of those who would oppose the plans of God. And he says God brings those plans to nothing. He frustrates them. He voids them. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought there's the real cancel culture. It's not what's happening in our world. The real cancel culture is God saying, oh yeah, your rebellion is laughable, Psalm 2. Your rebellion amounts to nothing. Your plans to go your own way will lead only to frustration. But God's plans stand forever to all generations. The eternal plans of the eternal king happen. Which brings us to the central, the core verse in this psalm, which is verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Instead of being in rebellion against the authoritative ruler, blessed are those who are in right relationship with him. Now in primary application, this is Israel. The nation God chose out of all the nations of the earth, which certainly has something to say about what's going on in the Middle East, though the nation of Israel now, the secular nation, is in rebellion against God, they are still His people. But it also applies to those of us who, through faith in Jesus Christ, have been grafted into the people of God. So that we are blessed because God is our authoritative ruler. And we can trust Him and we can rest in Him even when we don't always understand what is happening. Being in a right relationship with the authoritative ruler of the universe is the key for every one of us. So are you? Are you in a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ? He's the authoritative ruler. A pastor wanted to really stress that point, and so he asked one of the members of the church to go out and, and to put on the church sign this message. Our God reigns. We sang it. You will reign forever. But the member he asked had a little trouble with spelling. 
And the pastor walked out later and was horrified to see the sign say, Our God resigns. He doesn't, you know. And he never will. Because he is the authoritative ruler. He is always in charge. And we can praise him for that. Psalm 33, 13 continues on with motives for praise. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. See, he's the ruler. He's the absolute ruler. But God is also the aware sovereign. He is seated on the throne of heaven, and yet he's near to us. He is totally aware of what's happening in your life and my life. Notice the repetition of that concept. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out. He watches all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all observes all their deeds. The God who rules in heaven is aware of what's happening in your life and my life and the life of all humanity. He's not an absentee landlord. Notice how often the word all appears in those verses. God is aware of every single human being on this planet and what is going on in their lives, including in your life and mine. And if you know Jesus, that's a reason for praise. Because God looks at you, and because of your faith in Jesus Christ, He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he sees you not with all of your brokenness and sins, though he's fully aware of all of that and loves you anyway. He sees you as righteous in his eyes because Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and my sins. However, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, the fact that God is aware of every thought and every deed in your life should terrify you. Not with that kind of fear we talked about before, but with the terror of knowing there is a God who is completely aware of all of those thoughts and all of those things that you have done, and He judges sin. Which should make us very thankful for what the psalmist says next, as he moves into a fifth motive for praising God. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot save. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. See the repetition of save, delivered, salvation, rescue, deliver, keep. It just reminds us that God is the able Savior. That this God who knows you intimately, who sees every sin you have ever committed, is able to save you from the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sin. 
The psalmist talks about the futility of any other source of salvation. And he uses that word great. You can have a great army. You can have a hero with great strength. You can have a war horse that's great in its might. None of those will rescue you. And you can turn it around in terms of spiritual salvation and say you can do all of the good works that is possible for a human being to do. You can be the nicest person that you know. You can belong to a church. You can have been baptized. But if you are not trusting in what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross for your deliverance, you're trusting a false hope. Because God is the able Savior. And certainly there's a, there's a national implication there as well. And for the psalmist, he's saying to Israel, doesn't matter how big your army is. It doesn't matter how strong your cavalry is. It doesn't matter if you've got a hero like David on your side. That won't save you if you're not trusting God. And I thought as I was working on the sermon, I thought about how I watched a week or so ago the Republican presidential debate. And one of the things they hotly debated was, you know, the strength of the military and the need to strengthen our military. And I would agree with that. But if we as a nation keep thumbing our nose at God, it won't matter how strong our military is. Because no king, no nation is saved by strength. The only salvation is in God. And the psalmist tells us that there is an able Savior who's available. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, who have that joyous, off obedience. On those who hope in His, there's that word again, who hope in His hesed, His loyal, covenant-keeping, steadfast love. Because if you fear and obey God and are trusting in Him, then He will deliver your soul from death, that's eternal, and He will keep you alive in famine. If there's a lack of your basic essential needs, food and water, God still provides. We should praise God that He is the able Savior who can meet every need. But again, I ask you, is He your Savior? Have you trusted personally in what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross to cleanse you from your sins? If not, he's available and he's able, but you must bow the knee. You must accept that covenant relationship, that chesed, that steadfast love. All that he is meets our needs and he's far more than all that we need. And if the psalmist grasped that he is an able Savior, how much more should you and I grasp that? If the psalmist standing before the cross grasped it, how much more should you and I who stand on this side of the cross grasp that he is an able Savior? We just sang it a few minutes ago. Who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of me, of you, of sinful man? God eternal, humble to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. He is the able Savior. And you and I are called to be a thankful people. 
because of who God is. As I said at the beginning, none of these are man-centered. There's nothing wrong with being thankful for what God has done for me. We ought to be. But even when we struggle coming up with something to write down that God has done for us in that day, we can always praise Him for who He is. The active promise keeper, the all-powerful creator, the authoritative ruler, the aware sovereign, the able savior. But sometimes God does not act immediately when we think he ought to. Sometimes he acts and we say, well, that isn't what God should have done. We sang that too, right? Who has given counsel to the Lord? But that's what we feel, that's what we think. And sometimes those first three verses of Psalm 33, that exuberant, loud praise is not. It's not what we're feeling. And it's okay to worship quietly sometimes. In fact, the psalm ends that way. Look with me at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. See the difference? What a contrast with, shout for joy. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, your hesed, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The verbs there are all plural. This is a communal affirmation. It is a communal, quiet worship of God. And there's a place for that quiet, resting, trusting worship. There's a place for clinging to truth when we don't understand what's happening. It's in every verse. Our soul calmly waits. Why? Because He's the able Savior. He's our help and our shield. We can trust His protection. We gladly, joyously trust. Why? Because His name is holy. We can trust His character. We can trust who He is. We expectantly hope because we know His hesed. We know His covenant love is the ground of our hope. Sometimes all we can do is wait and trust. And hope, because things don't make sense to us as we look at them. There's a quote that is attributed to the old-time preacher and author Vance Havner. I was not able to find it anywhere that it, where he said it, but I'm going to attribute it to him, since that's where it is usually attributed. He said, God marks across some lives, we'll explain later. And when God marks across a life, I'm not going to tell you now why it's happening. I'll explain later. Then you know what we do? We wait. We trust. We hope. And we gather each week for worship, to renew our waiting and our trusting and our hoping. We gather to praise. If you're one of God's people. Are you? If you are one of God's people, then rest and trust 
and at least occasionally shout out your worship and praise. Because what the psalmist is telling us in this psalm is that in corporate gatherings like this, but also in daily life, we are called to lift our hearts and our voices in thankful praise to our God. So do that today. Lift your voice in praise. Share with people around you. Do that this week as you rub shoulders with family and friends. Tell what God has done for you. These last verses are a communal affirmation of our faith in God. And after I pray, we're going to sing a communal affirmation of our faith in the God who is all of the things we've seen this morning. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the active promise keeper, that you are the all-powerful creator, the authoritative ruler who's fully aware of everything in our lives, and that you save Thank you that you are the anchor of our lives when the world seems to go so wrong. We pray in your name. We pray in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus.